Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And the title of my message today is Triple Threat. Triple Threat. Uh, which is often what I've been called, triple threat. They're like, he can sing, he can dance. No, they've never said that about me. I... um. I ran into, this happens all the time, you know, I, because uh, I know people from church, and I run into people outside of church, and uh, a lot of times it's, it scares them, and it throws them off, like they act like that I've been sent there to spy on them or something, and they feel the need, like I'll, I'll, somebody will be like, oh, like they, they, they think that maybe somehow God sent me to the grocery store to just be like, where were you last week at church or whatever? And people will like start confessing or apologizing to me when they see me in public. And I'm like, I'm just trying to buy some ice cream. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm not here for you. You know what I mean? And they're just like, I'm so sorry. I, we were out of town. And I, I'm like, I don't even, what are you talking about? Right? Um, and this happens with all different sorts of people. Um, the best is like, is, is with kids. And uh, like a, a few weeks ago, I was at the gym and I ran into a family that goes to our church, and they have little kids, and they were checking their kids out of the, uh, the little child center there. And um, when I came around the corner and the kid saw me, he just sort of like froze and was like confused, kind of like the look that like you had on your face when you were, remember when you were a kid and you saw your kindergarten teacher outside of school, and you were like, they let you out? What are you doing here in the wild, you know? And it was so confusing. And that ki- this kid had that look on his face, and he was just like, he was so perplexed as to why I was there. And he pointed at me, and he was just like, church, right? And I think he thinks that's my name. I think he thinks my name, this kid thinks my name is church. And he, uh, and so they were like, oh, say hi. And he just goes, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm allowed to be here. Um, you know, I was just, uh, I was just getting a workout. And he goes, and right away, this kid's so quick. He goes, then why are you still fat? And I was like, you know what? I've been meaning to lodge a complaint about that as well. Uh, Cause I'm here a lot for my weight class. It doesn't seem to make sense. And he was just so, so perplexed, right? Like that confusion of like, I know you from one space and one environment. I know you as like a one dimensional creature and you're not allowed to leave the premises, right? I think in his mind, like I should have one of those dog shock collars that just keeps me in the churchyard, you know, and I'm not to venture out. And seeing me somewhere else was just like all of his categories were exploding. And I think all of us, we have these sorts of, of moments in our own life too, And the reason that this happens to us um, on many different levels, right, even as adults, right, we see someone out of the environment we're used to seeing them in, and for a minute, we just sort of get really confused. If you see, like, your mechanic, um, you know, at a, a PTA meeting, you're just like, what is happening here, right? You see your tattoo artist, right, at a Little League game. It's like there are things that are just like, wait a minute, you belong in a different sort of sphere, And the reason this happens is that when we only relate to someone in one way, 
or in one context, our idea of them often narrows to fit within the parameters of those experiences, right? Like when we're only used to relating to someone in this way, in this place, we're just like, this is you, right? We sort of, we sort of box them in according to how we've experienced them. We don't do it on purpose. It happens naturally. It's sort of this intellectual mechanism that helps us keep track of people. And, you know, then we have these moments where we realize that uh, our view of them was a little too narrow because we experienced them in a different environment, in a different context, in a different way. And in those moments, we feel surprised. We feel shocked. Sometimes we feel betrayed, right? You ever have that moment where you're just like, I thought I knew you, right? And it's not that they are they've actually betrayed you. It's not that they're doing anything that's inconsistent with who they really are. It's not like they've misrepresented themselves. It's not that they're trying to trick you. And it's not even that you didn't know them. It's that you only knew a part of them. And we do this all the time, even when we don't mean to. We oversimplify people. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We do it to, to make sense of people and to relate to them. And it works on, on sort of a surface level, especially when we are jump-starting a relationship and we're meeting somebody new. We're trying to integrate into a new environment. We're trying to keep track of a lot of different types of people. But here's the issue with this. People aren't simple. Have you noticed this? People are very complex. And the more we learn about them and the more context we interact with them in, the fuller our understanding of that particular person becomes and the deeper our relationship with them can get over time. Like think about how your understanding of your best friend now has evolved uh, since the time you first met them, right? Like you see them completely differently than you did then. Like when you first met them, you probably had this understanding of like, Tattoo guy who likes ping pong. Nice, right? That's probably it. That's sort of how you filed that person away. And that was fine. That was enough to sort of jumpstart and be like, we should hang out again, right? Um, but then over time, uh, something else developed. Things got deeper. You learned more. You've interacted with them in different ways. You've, you've sort of seen different uh, aspects of their personality, of their character. And now you connect on like 18 different levels. The relationship has all this depth and dimension to it. And the reason I bring this up is that if we have this tendency to oversimplify people, how much more likely is it that we have this tendency to oversimplify God? The reality of it is God is way bigger and broader than we could ever imagine. But many of us, we get used to relating to God in one particular way or one particular context, and our view of him narrows to sort of fit within the parameters of our previous experiences with him. And our relationship with God becomes sort of one-dimensional. And what we may know of God and our experience of God may actually be a part of him, but it's just a part. It's not the whole him. Now, I would tell you that like, something comes to mind when someone says God to you, when somebody says the word God. Now, it may be something that is good or bad. It may be accurate. It may not be, but something comes to mind. Maybe it's an image or an idea or an experience. Maybe it's a picture or a portrait or a parable. But the reason it's important to unpack what comes to mind when we think of God 
is that who we think God is has profound implications for who we think we are. Like we determine who we are and how we function based on who we see God to be. And if we have a distorted or a narrow view of God, um, oftentimes we live a life that is disconnected from who we were actually meant and made to be. And this is something that we all wrestle with. Like, who am I? Right? Like, what is my life about? Like, what, what am I here for? Like, wh- like, how do I find meaning? And in our tradition, um, in terms of how we sort of unpack and explain God, one of the prominent ideas of God is this idea of God as Trinity. And I'm going to give you just the, the, the textbook theological definition for what the Trinity is. The Trinity is this mysterious co-mingling of Father, Son, and Spirit, one God existing in three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial persons sharing a singular divine essence. So like super easy to understand, right? You guys got it, right? We can move on. Like when most of us look at this, we're just like, I don't even know that I know what some of those words mean. Some of the words in the definition are more confusing than the word it's defining, Right? We look at this and we're just like, I mean, I don't know. I know some of the words. I don't know how they fit together. I don't understand what this means. Sometimes this is described with an image. There's a lot of like religious artwork um, that expresses this idea. Like here's a painting, right? Where it is like, uh, you know, Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. Supposedly this is a representation of them. And then there's, you know, the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove who's shooting his laser beams through the crown And then like, you know, God, the father gained a little bit of weight during COVID and he's just sort of like slumped over and he's using the world as a bowling ball, I think. I don't know, he's got a fire poker and then Jesus is there and he's just like, hey, we should share the crown, peace everyone. And then, you know, he's going with like an off the shoulder look because it's summer and there's just a lot about this where like, what does this mean? What is happening here? What am I supposed to gather from this? And we just look at this and we just accept it. We're like, the Trinity, this is how it works. And we're like, how, how does this tell us that it, what, what works? What are we talking about? Or maybe like it's depicted in some sort of like a, uh, a shareable meme, like something like this, um, like some sort of a diagram, right? Where uh, you have God in the center and uh, sort of these little orbs. Um, some of you are like, I'm gonna get that as a lower back tattoo. Now that I've seen it, I like that a lot, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And then there's these little things on the side that are like, the Father is not the Son, but He is God, but then whatever, and it is. And we look at this, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, what? Right? Like, you're like, that makes sense, and also, I, what? It doesn't make sense at the same time. We get confused. And so what does all this mean? How does it work? And how did this view of God come about? And this is, these are the things that I think we need to unpack at sort of a broad base level before we can get into defining um, the Holy Spirit and really tackling these metaphors about the Spirit of God, the metaphors of breath, doves, clouds, and fire. And in order to sort of answer this question of like, what does this mean? How do we explain or understand the concept of Trinity? Um, We've got to back up to uh, a story that involves this guy named Moses. And he is a significant Hebrew figure, right? He's sort of the, one of the founding fathers or sort of the, the, the spiritual fathers of the Hebrew faith that our faith grows out of. Um, but at this point in his life, 
like things have not gone the way he hoped. Like he's living in a desert, both literally and figuratively. Uh, He's doing mundane work. He's dissatisfied with his life. He's separated from his people. And it's in this moment that he has this odd, undeniable encounter with God. And God says this to him in this moment. This is found in Exodus chapter three, verse seven. This is God speaking through a fire coming out of a burning bush, which we'll get into in the weeks uh, to come because there's just a lot going on there. But God says this, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cries of distress. I'm aware of their suffering. I've come to rescue them. Now, this is fascinating because what this is telling us is that there is something bigger than and outside of us as humans that is watching and listening and paying attention. And what's it paying attention to? This thing that is outside of us. Like what prompts this being to speak up and spring to action? Oppression, suffering, distress. And Moses, when he hears God say this, he has this deep sense of relief. Like that God sees what is going on, that God validates the pain that he and his people are experiencing, that God refuses to discount or dismiss the suffering of humanity. And Moses is thinking like, God, I cannot wait to see what you do about this. And then God says this to him. He says, now go, I'm sending you. And Moses is like, yeah, I didn't sign up. I don't, this is not, you were gonna move Verse 11, it says, Moses protested, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people? If I go to the people and tell them, God sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replies, I am who I am. And a lot of us, we read this and we're just like, what? Like the the weird painting of the laser beam dove made more sense than that. I am who I, is it like, is this sort of God brushing Moses off? No, it's a really profound answer. And a part of what is missing is just our, our, our lack of understanding of the language that's being used and the depth of these words from the original language in which they're being translated from. And essentially what God is saying here is, who am I? Like if they ask you who I am and what my name is, I am the all-powerful source and sustainer of all things. I am breath, life, love, truth, justice, and reality itself. Tell them that's who sent you. That's the ultimate mic drop. Oh, what's my name? How about source and sustainer of everything? Tell them that's who sent you. Trust me, they'll, they'll respect that. Now, here's what we need to understand. Like, to us, when we think of God, we're like, yeah, obviously God is the source and sustainer of all things. That, that is not a radical concept to us. But keep in mind, when, when this passage happens, when this story takes place, we're way back in human history. So this is a new idea. People didn't think of there being a God. People thought of there being many gods. Like various forces that, that sort of selfishly battled and overpowered and dominated and manipulated humanity. And that's how the people initially hearing this story would have interpreted this story. This idea, this sort of contest that gets set up in the book of Exodus between Moses and Pharaoh, 
between Israel and Egypt, it, it, it wasn't really the battle between two people or two leaders or even two countries. These people would have seen this ultimately as a clashing of two fundamentally different worldviews. And this was the question that this sort of contest or battle between God, the I am, and Pharaoh, this is the question that it was posing. Is there a God who sees oppression and hears the cries of the distress and is aware of suffering and comes to the rescue? Or are there many gods who selfishly battle and overpower and dominate and manipulate humanity to get whatever they want? Which is true. How does it work? Some of you already looked at the cheat sheet. And you know what? That's not fair to the rest of the audience. Why is this even important? Because who we think God is has profound implications for who we think we are. And the epiphany that Moses has that becomes the foundation of the Israelite faith, that becomes the foundation of the Christian faith, is this idea that there is one God and he is much bigger than you think. He's omnipotent, which means he can do anything. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once. He's omniscient, which means he knows all things. And he's designed the world to work a certain way. In other words, God has preferences. Some of you might be thinking like, what does that mean? Preferences, like he's really into like 90s rap and he likes sushi and he likes stranger things, but not the scary parts. He's fast forwards, like, is he the one I get, you know? Not, not really. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I haven't really talked to him about that. But the things that we do know that God has preference for is that like people shouldn't be enslaved. Like people should not be oppressed. That loving self-sacrifice is the way forward. These are the things that, that God prefers. Now, if you have a hard time sort of envisioning this idea of energy and existence as self-having preferences, you are not alone. That's a big concept to sort of wrap your mind around. And these people had a hard time with that too, which is why it didn't take long for them to nickname this image of God, Father. Why? Why would you nickname this idea of God as source, Father? Uh, Partially because for these ancient people, it was the most intuitive way to personify this really abstract concept of God, because your earthly father, in their minds, physically gave you life and breath and provides and cares for you and teaches you right from wrong. And so it was helpful for these people to think of humanity as having a heavenly father as well, who does the same thing for us all on a more significant spiritual scale. And this is really helpful, but like all images of God, it's both accurate and incomplete, right? It's helpful, but only to an extent because it's, it's sort of hard to relationally connect with the abstract and invisible, right? If I tell you something that is very true, which is that God is love, you're like, that's great. And then the very next thing you're wondering is like, what does love look like? What does love do? How does love act? How do I relate to that? It's difficult to relate to a concept. And this is part of just our programming as people. Humans need samples, examples, and illustrations to learn from. So God does something really radical. God puts skin on source. 
he packages himself in a person, and that person is Jesus, and he does it to help us relate to him. One New Testament writer puts it this way in a letter to the first Christians. Um, he says that the, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus. Now, this is, I think, one of the most mind-blowing passages of Scripture uh, that exists in, in our canon. Um, this is like even more radical when you think of this existing in the New Testament. This is I am lingo. This is source language being applied to Jesus. The Son is the human embodiment of the Heavenly Father. And it even goes a step further and tells us that they both existed as one and have since the beginning of time that they made and are holding together and directing and repairing all of creation please tell me that this blows your mind a little bit. This is telling us essentially something that we need as people, that God isn't just a set of principles to adhere to. He's a person to relate to. <clears throat> and that person is Jesus. That Jesus is our ability to sort of connect through that which is really too big for us to wrap our minds around. Through Jesus, we can see who God is and how he relates to humanity on a, both an individual and a societal level. And so Jesus was born in a human body. He came to earth. He taught. He did miracles. He ate with people. He gave validity and dignity to, to those who felt overlooked and oppressed. In other words, Jesus did human stuff in a way that brought heaven to earth. And he references this in the New Testament over and over again. And then he tells his believers, those who uh, have placed their faith in him, to follow me, mimic me, model me, do what I do. Let me be your sample, your example. And this is really helpful, this idea or image of God. But it's also incomplete. It's helpful because I can look back through the halls of human history and I can see how Jesus handled that then. But what I really want to know is, how would Jesus handle this now? And that's sometimes harder to answer. And even if Jesus appeared now to us in human form, like if Jesus was born in a human body all over again and grew up and you could like hang out with him, there's still sort of an issue with that, right? Because a human body can only be at one in one place at once. Meaning like, if Jesus was here on earth right now, he could only be with the people that he was with in body. And that's a problem because I need him with me. But billions of other people also need him with them. And so how do we solve that? Well, I'm the favorite, so he comes with me. Right? Like, there's, there's an issue here, right? Because when you package an infinite being in a finite body, it takes on the limitations of humanity. So, so the way this is said a lot of times theologically is that Jesus is 100% God, but also 100% human. 
And so it's, it's like this idea of taking the immense capacity of God and packaging it in a human being, which, which means that God gives up certain things in order to take on the limitations and live life the way we do is to give us a sample, an example, a model to follow after. And the fact that this is true, that, that God takes on the limitations to enter into humanity, is why Jesus says something before he leaves earth. John chapter 16, verse seven, he says this, which is really baffling. He says, it's best, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. What? Now, doesn't this sound like a preposterous thing? Like, don't, have you ever had these moments where you just like wish, like I wish Jesus could just hang out with me and tell me what to do and help me and teach me and discipline my kids for me, right? Like you've thought this. And these people had that. Imagine having that and then Jesus being like, but here's the deal. It's actually good if I leave. You're like, what? No, no, because if I don't leave, then the advocate can't come. And people are like, sounds like a superhero. What, what, is, what is it? What's the advocate? John chapter 14, verse 16 Jesus says this, he says, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Okay, that's a bonus. Verse 17, he is the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. You know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. There's a lot of profound concepts here, but uh, the thing I would tell you, any English translation of the Bible, like, so if you're, you're holding your Bible or you're like thumbing through it on your phone, um, the word advocate in all of these places, it, it usually has like an asterisk by it, like, or a, a letter or something directing you to a footnote explaining that the word advocate that's used here, there's no equivalent for this word in the English language. And it lists other words that are like kind of close to advocate, like comforter, counselor, helper, encourager. The Greek word is actually parakletos, uh, which literally means one sent to help or one who appears on another's behalf. And so I, I want to just give you sort of an overview. This is sort of how I, I think about this idea of father, son, and spirit or source, son, and spirit. You have these three images that are being discussed, right? You have God the Father, right, who is this picture of the source and sustainer of all things. Then you have God as son, which is the skin and bone sample to show us all the way, the way to be, the way to live. And then you have God as spirit, the internal advocate that's steering us forward. So you have these three images that comprise the Trinity, Another way that you could say this is the source or father of all things showed himself to us through the son and resides in us through the spirit. Now you're probably thinking after I've explained all this, like, oh, I get it, except not really, uh, which is how it is. Okay, like if you could get to a place where you could fully wrap your brain around like uh, exactly precisely and completely who God is, the thing you would be talking about at that point would no longer be God. Because God is beyond your understanding. 
Um, that doesn't mean that all images of God are valid. Some are just plain wrong. But it does mean that even the accurate ones, like these ones here, are still gonna be incomplete. And so what we know is that God is mysteriously all these things, all the time, all at once. Source, Son, and Spirit. But the beauty to me of the progression in which they're laid out in Scripture the, the beauty of this imagery is that God goes from out there to right here to in here. Have you noticed this? That God is the source that is out there and that is like profound and incredible. But then God becomes accessible by taking on human form and being right here. And then God takes on spirit form and, and takes up residence right in here right in here. Because we need to relate to God on all three levels. And I think for most of us, the first two ideas are easier to understand because they come with built-in metaphors. It's in the title. Most of us are like, Father, got it, get it. I mean, sure, you're talking about it in more of a transcendent way, but the, I, the gist of it I get, right? Son, I understand, like a person, and it's like the product of a thing. I get, like, I understand that. And then spirit, we're just like, you lost me. I don't know what that is. How do you describe spirit? Like this becomes the, the tricky part. How does, how, like what does spirit look like? How does spirit function? How do you relate to spirit? Like when we pray to God as our father, we sort of have an image or an understanding of what that conversation might should look like. When we talk to God as like, this, this uh, fellow human, right, who lived our lives and knows our pain and sacrificed himself on our behalf, we sort of have an idea for how those interactions should take place. But spirit confounds us. And, and yet all throughout scripture, the spirit of God is spoken of almost entirely in metaphors. And a metaphor is essentially just a word picture. And several are used throughout the Old and New Testament, but there are uh, there are seven that are used most often and four that are used even the most. And these four, as you might have guessed, are breath, doves, clouds, and fire. And some of you are like, oh, I get the title. I, it just made sense to me. And that means I accomplished my mission in this message. But, but why? Why are these four word pictures utilized so often? to describe spirit? Like what can these images teach us about who the Holy Spirit is and what kind of relationship he wants to have with us? I think in many ways that these word pictures are the key to deepening our connection with God, to helping us become the kinds of people that we were made to be and that we ultimately desire to be, spirit-led people. Maybe you've heard that phrase before and you're like, I just, I've heard churchy people say it, I don't know what it means. What does it mean to be a spirit-led person? Because it sounds touchy-feely. Growing up in the church, I always thought that like, you know, like having a deep connection with the Holy Spirit meant that I would feel emotionally connected to God at all times. But according to scripture, we identify the Spirit's presence in our lives by the fruit he's producing, not the feelings we're experiencing. Sometimes you may have a sense or a feeling of the Holy Spirit being with and in you, and sometimes you may not. But the feelings are not the indicator, the fruit is. And here's what I mean by that. 
Galatians chapter five, verse 22 says this, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, spiritual depth looks like treating all of God's creation just like he does. With love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And that looks like what it's always looked like, seeing the oppression of other people hearing their cries, being aware of their suffering, and personally sacrificing to restore and repair them. And how do we get better at that? By leaning into the Spirit's leading in the ways these metaphors are meant to describe. Which is why I think you need to be here all month long as we unpack breath, doves, clouds, and fire because these word pictures show us how the Holy Spirit wants to make us like God, who is this internal, impersonal, interpersonal presence of God that can speak to our hearts and minds in real time and help us live and love like God. And I gotta be honest, like I I need this in my life. And maybe you are, maybe you aren't aware of it, but you do too. And this is why we're spending the entire summer, at least these next four weeks, five weeks, just unpacking these ideas. I know it sort of sounds a little bit out there. You're like, we're gonna do a whole week on doves. Trust me. Um, It's not just gonna be uh, like a Prince song that we unpack slowly. It may be in there. It may be in there, okay? JR might be wearing leather pants that week, and I, don't, I can't make any promises. I can neither confirm nor deny, but Cassie is very excited. But I'm going to tell you, when we dig below the surface of these word pictures, I think the, the practical action that they suggest we take makes it so much easier to access the spirit of God in our everyday existence. And that is the key to living the life you were meant to live. And that's what I wanna pray into your life today, that God would take whatever limited, narrow image you currently have of him and throughout this series, that as he shows you different dynamics and different dimensions of who he is, that your relationship with him would grow, that your idea of him would expand and the depth of your connection with him would be the deepest it has ever been. Because the more we know of God, the more of God we can connect with and the more of God we can emulate in our everyday lives. Will you bow your heads with me across this room? I just wanna pray this into your hearts and lives today. God, we are grateful to you as our source We know that who we are and everything we have comes from you, that every good thing comes from you. But you don't just stop there. You don't just set the world in motion. You show us how to live and you do this not by just giving us principles, but by giving us a person, the person of Jesus, 
to settle down into human history, to give us a sample, an example of what it looks like to love and live like God. And then you go even a step further and you, you give us the gift of your spirit to reside in our hearts and minds to lead us day by day, moment by moment. And God, I pray that during this series, you would expand our idea, our view of you, that we would come to know you at a deeper, richer level. And God, that you would begin to develop our relationship with you to where we can, we can sense your presence in every single moment, that we, that we understand your leading in every single circumstance and situation. God, that as we unpack these metaphors, that our interactions with you would grow richer and deeper and more profound. And God, ultimately, that we and our community and our world would benefit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.